being in the season of Advent, we want to look at the Advent theme this morning. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72, Psalm 72, and we'll read this psalm in its entirety. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The superscription of this psalm, Psalm 72, which reads, Of Solomon, in the Hebrew may either be translated for Solomon or by Solomon. So that the prayer here in Psalm 72 was for Solomon or by Solomon. However we take it, the fact is that no earthly king could ever fulfill the hopes and desires so articulated in this particular prayer. Because the attributes and achievements of this desired king, we could say, transcend the qualities and accomplishments of all earthly kings. This psalm clearly has in view a king who is extraordinary, a king who is perfect, both in terms of his character and his deeds, indeed a messianic king who was earth's rightful bona fide ruler, is the king of kings and lord of lords, and hence, the longing desire and anticipation of all nations. That king, of course, is none other 
than great David's greater son, the divine, eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this regard, various titles have been assigned to this particular Psalm 72, such titles as A King Larger Than Life, A People's Prayer for a Perfect King. In this season of Advent, we want this morning to focus on this King, our Lord Jesus, and his coming kingdom. And as we study this great psalm, we find that the multifaceted characteristics of this king and his kingdom are borne out by the repeated words, may he or he shall, depending on the particular version of, of the Bible that's being used. And the question this morning is, what can we learn of the kingdom, what can we learn about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? What can we learn about this king, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his great kingdom? And there are five things, I'm not sure we'll be able to cover all of them, but in the first place, his kingdom, we discover from our text, is one of unsoiled integrity. His kingdom is one of unsoiled integrity, that is to say, his rule, his reign, is marked by moral perfection. Suggested by verse 1 is that he is invested with justice and righteousness, such that according to verse 2, he judges with righteousness. And what this means is that with him there is no partiality, with him there is no prejudicial regard for men's persons. It means that he judges with equity, that he judges with fairness. As a king of impeccable integrity, he is therefore portrayed in Psalm 45 and verse 4 as moving swiftly and passionately in the cause of truth and righteousness. And so in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, we are told that the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness and that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Psalm 99 and verse 4 tells us of this king, or Lord Jesus, that in his might, this is what the word of God says, in his might, he loves justice. It's as though the psalmist is saying in a veiled way, and here's the truth, you and I, we could not really say that in ordinary terms that God has any strong points. Because as the perfect God that he is, perfect in holiness and righteousness, he has no strengths, he has no weaknesses, he is who he is as Almighty God. But here the psalmist says, in his might he loves justice, that he has established equity, that he has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. As such, notice... That as a function of his righteousness and his justice, he vindicates the weak and vulnerable. Even as he executes vengeance on their oppressors, look at verse 4, the word of God says there, May he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The fact is that true righteousness, wherever there is true righteousness, that, that righteousness 
that constitutes the holy character of God and by which God's kingdom operates. Such righteousness necessarily, we would say, involves rewarding the righteous as well as punishing the wicked. Now, who are the poor and needy in Scripture? It's very important we get this because there's a teaching abroad today. You see, it's in what is known as liberation theology that teaches that God is biased toward the poor, that God is particularly biased toward the poor. The question has to be then, who are the poor and needy in Scripture? And whereas the term primarily has reference to those who are at the lowest end of the economic ladder, the financially destitute, it is also used as a designation for God's people, the righteous. We see this, for example, in verse 2. Look at verse 2. We notice there that God's people, verse 2a, are identified as, look at verse 2b, they are identified as his poor ones. The verse is in synonymous parallelism, which means that the first line is synonymous with the second line. So the poor really are really, that is being referred to here, are those who are God's people. Such, we would say, are those who are meek and humble before God. Such are referred to in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, our Lord Jesus refers to such as the poor in spirit. Such are those who cry out to him for deliverance. Such as those are those who look to him, who trust him, who in dependence cry out to him in their deepest need. There are those who are oftentimes oppressed because of their stand for truth and righteousness. In righteousness, we learn from the word of God here in our text that our divine king champions the cause of his marginalized, oppressed people, that is, his people, his redeemed, while bringing their oppressors into judgment. The very opposite, my friends, of what obtains with many a government in our time. Because in societies today, we find that in the name of social justice, many, a government, tends more to oppress those who are in the minority as far as truth and right are concerned, while giving a pass to perpetrators of wrong and evil. Peasing the mob, they afflict those they see as soft targets. We are seeing that in our own society. We are seeing, for example, people who can burglarize stores and their behavior is explained away by those in our government. And we have parents who are championing the cause of their children, seeking to grow their children right, who are denied access oftentimes. In fact, legislations are sometimes put in place to criminalize such parents. It is what is known as anarcho-tyranny. Anarcho-tyranny. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 15 speaks of it as justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, which act is an abomination to the Lord. That's what the word of God says. The one who condemns the righteous and justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The word of God is saying here, he hates not just the action, but he loathes and despises those who are given to oppressing his people, giving them wrong, while giving right to their oppressors. 
But praise God, there's coming a time when under the righteous rule of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, truth and justice will hold sway. Indeed, the season of Advent should remind us, should assure us of the comforting, assuring truth that there is coming a day at the return of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will return rectifying all wrongs, toppling down and crushing all injustice and those who perpetrate injustice. Indeed, such will be a time when he'll rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. There's coming a time, my friends, where this world is going to marvel. You hear the expression, make America great again. I tell you something. <laughs> That is nothing in relation to what our Lord Jesus is going to do to this world. He's going to make this world great again. As regards his kingdom then, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is first of all a kingdom of unsoiled integrity. But second, his kingdom, we notice from our text, is one of unending prosperity. His kingdom is one of unending prosperity because as indicated in verses 3 through 7, his reign will usher in a time of stability and peace such as this world has never seen. First of all, we know that the reign of our Lord Jesus, notice from verse 3, will be met with hearty popular acclaim. It will be met with widespread enthused praise. This is not a Democrat thing or a Republican thing. Because when our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, comes, everybody who is at odds right now, those who love the Lord Jesus, there is going to be popular, widespread, enthused acclaim of his reign upon the earth, that of his reign over the entire universe. We read in verse 3, here's the word of God says, Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Now, if the verb bear is used in the sense of proclaiming, because, you know, the, the word bear in Scripture can mean one of two things. It, it can mean proclaiming, and if it is used here to begin with in the sense of proclaiming or announcing, then the mountains metaphorically refer to the multitudes, the myriads of messengers, the countless numbers of peoples, of nations who come over them, publishing, announcing the wonderful news of the widespread stability and flourishing of the earth under the reign of the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, if the verb bear is being used to mean bring forth, then the suggestion is this, that like an abundant harvest, the mountains and hills will exhibit the fruit of prosperity under the reign of Christ. And then note this, the imagery of mountains then would suggest what? The visibility, the prominence, and the prevalence of Christ's blessings that he brings with his reign. The Hebrew word that's translated prosperity in verse 3 is shalom. And shalom in the Hebrew mindset speaks, it denotes not just peace, but wholeness. Shalom speaks of well-being. Shalom speaks of all that is good and delightful and enjoyable. 
And what here, the word of God is saying here is this, that Jesus Christ, his reign, when he comes again and sets up his kingdom, his universal, everlasting kingdom, it is going to be a time of unprecedented peace, of unprecedented fulfillment. What is it that people crave for today? What is it that people hunger for today? They are hungering, they are craving for fulfillment, for meaning, for purpose. And the word of God is saying here that Christ offers all that and more under his reign, his kingdom of prosperity Second notice that with respect to the unending prosperity of Christ's kingdom, reverential awe and adoration will be eternally accorded him. Reverential awe and adoration will be eternally accorded him. Look at verse 5. Here's what he says. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. And the words, as long as the moon, throughout all generations, speak of the eternality of the king, the immortality of the king in question. And it surely does hint at the fact that the psalm could therefore not have been talking about just another king. It has to be a divine king, the Lord Jesus. Because only our Lord Jesus, the word of God says that he alone has immortality. They confirm the fact that this psalm ultimately concerns then Jesus Christ, who was king, will be feared and revered forever and ever. A king will be worshipped throughout the boundless eons of eternity, and truly never is there, let me say this, never is there true prosperity, true wholeness, true peace, where there is not the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Do you lack peace this morning? Do you lack direction? Do you lack fulfillment? Do you lack assurance to face life with all its anxieties, with all its cares? That is to be found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the prosperity that he brings. And let me tell you this. It doesn't have to be when you die and go to heaven. It doesn't have to be when he returns. You can have that right now in time. Because our Lord Jesus declared, he said to the woman at the well, this woman who had been searching, this woman who had been thirsty, this woman who lacked direction in life, when she asked for, for she said to him, where are you going to get the water that you're going to give me? He says, listen, the water that I will give you, lady, will be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What was he talking about? He was talking about physical water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. He was talking about eternal life. Here's a question this morning. Do you have eternal life? Do you know Christ? For this is life eternal. John 17 verse 3. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the third place, as regards the unending prosperity of Christ's kingdom. Notice in verses 6 and 7. Refreshing, reviving mercies derived from him. Refreshing, reviving mercies derived from him. First of all, look at verse 6. Here's what the word of God says. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And the imagery here speaks of the beneficent effects of his rule and reign. The far-reaching beneficent effects of his rule and reign. Listen, we think of the misery the discomfort, 
that comes upon man and beast whenever there is a drought, whenever there is a want for showers of rain. Have you ever been there? Let me tell you, it's not a pleasant thing. When we are parched, when we are famished because of a lack of water, we are thirsty, there is nothing that can resolve that but water. Water is life. And in the spiritual realm, how we languish for want of spiritual showers from the Lord. Certainly our nation is famished and parched. Our nation, our society, suffers from aridity on account of a drought, a spiritual famine. Why? Because there's no longer the word of God. The prophet Amos says this in the book of Amos. He says in the last days, there's going to come a famine, a famine not in respect of water, not in respect of food, but of hearing the word of God. We are living in an age of spiritual famine, spiritual drought. Doesn't it show in lives, lives that are wandering, lives that are aimless, people are thirsty, thirsting for they know not what and the Lord Jesus we are told here beloved the fact is the Lord Jesus is portrayed here as showers coming upon the mown grass as showers as rainfalls coming upon the earth how cool how refreshing how satisfying how fulfilling is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ when he enters a heart when he enters a life there's nothing that is more fulfilling there's nothing that's more refreshing and reviving as the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, releasing the Spirit into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. Verse 7 here is an unmistakable feature of the prosperity of Christ's kingdom. Listen to what the Word of God says. In his days, may the righteous flourish. Whenever you see may throughout the psalm, it can also be translated will. In his days, the righteous will flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. What does that mean? The moon had rather ceased than God's blessings in Christ end. In other words, what the word of God is saying here is this, that the peace, the prosperity afforded by our Lord Jesus, by the rule of Christ, by the reign, by the kingdom of Christ, is a prosperity that is unending, a prosperity that is everlasting. Verse 16 expands on the, this motif of prosperity under the reign of our King Jesus as follows. Here's what he says. May there be abundance of grain in the land on top of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. I want us to notice something here. Look carefully at verse 7 because here's the point. The point is this, that the true prosperity of a nation is not just when money is flowing. It's not just when the lines of production are rolling and there, there are goods uh, and services abounding. But look at the last part of the verse. And may people blossom like in the cities like the grass of the field. Here's the point. Many it is very much possible to prosper financially, you see. It's very much possible to prosper financially, materially, and be famished in soul. The psalmist is saying here, listen, the blessing that Christ brings supersedes any material blessing, any financial blessing, because here's the truth. We could be wealthy, we could have it, we could live comfortably and die a spiritual pauper, die bankrupt as far as favor with God is concerned. 
So such are the refreshing, reviving mercies, which like showers of rain falling on the earth, descend from the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the unbounded, unending prosperity of his reign, no wonder it is that we find throughout the Psalms, the earth is summoned to do what? Rejoice. Listen, Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, Psalm 96, 10 to 11, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved, he will judge the peoples with equity, let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it, let the field exult, and everything in it, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy, here's the good news, listen, we today, and not just our government, but Governments throughout the world are all uptight about the environment, worshipping the creature rather than the creator. They tell us how much the environment is running down, and we must do everything to save planet Earth. Let me tell you something. There's nothing that you and I can do to save planet Earth because God has it under control. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He created this world. One of the marvels of this world that God has created is that it has a way of self-cleaning. Do you notice in our passage, Psalm 96, 10 through 12, that under Christ's kingdom, under Christ's prosperity, when God is in his rightful place, and when Christ is enthroned, what happens? That takes care of the environment. It takes care of the environment. Because, you see, when man is out of sync with God, creation groans. Romans chapter 8, the whole creation is presently groaning. Why? Because of the effects of man's sins. And not until man is restored to God, his maker, through the Lord Jesus Christ, will there be shalom, wholeness, peace, prosperity across this world. Let me say this. The Democrats are not going to bring it. Here's some bad news. The Republicans are not going to bring it. It is only Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the governor, the one who's on whose shoulder is the government, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, who can procure peace, who can maintain peace, and who can shed peace across this world abundantly, and not just through the world, but in the human heart. And that is why in this season of Advent, we join the songwriter in declaring, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings found far as the curse is found. As regards the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, his kingdom, first of all, is a kingdom of unsoiled integrity. He's absolutely righteous and perfect. He deals with equity, justice, fairness. He's impartial. He doesn't favor the rich and stomp on the poor. He doesn't even favor the poor because, you see, that's one of the mistakes of our culture is to say, look, show more favor to the poor and put the rich at a disadvantage, which means that there we have social injustice. His kingdom is a kingdom of unsoiled integrity. It's a kingdom of unending prosperity. But thirdly, and we'll close with this one, his kingdom is one of universal sovereignty. 
The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, is a kingdom of universal sovereignty. We see this in verses 8 through 11 with reference to his universal dominion. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 speaks, first of all, verse 8 speaks of its spatial expanse. Its spatial expanse. Here's what verse 8 says. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. No doubt you have heard in recent times the expression which has become popular, which of course is not in a good context, from the river to the sea and so on and so forth. You have heard that. But here's a point, beloved. From our text, we can rightly and unblushingly affirm that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords, exercises dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That is to say, his rule and reign carries with it spatial expansiveness. This world, after all, is his. He created it. He's the proprietor of this world because all things were created by him and for him and through him. And here's the point. Every square inch of this earth, indeed not just this earth, but the entire universe is his. Is his. Highlighting the universality of Christ's sovereignty. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 declares, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, that is to say the universal government, the running of this world, the running of this universe, will be upon his shoulders. You know why? Because his shoulders are broad enough. <laughs> and I like the fact that he did not just say upon his shoulders. His shoulder, his strength. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The spatial expanse of his kingdom, his kingdom stretches from sea to sea, from the river to the sea, I would venture to say from earth to the skies and beyond. Second, with reference to Christ's universal sovereignty, verses 9 through 11, not only do we see in verse 8 its spatial expanse, but we see in verses 9 through 11 its influential extent. Its influential extent. That is to say, the extent of its impact on peoples and nations. This divine king, our Lord Jesus Christ, will be accorded, notice, not just honor, but worship. And worship, Mark, you from all people, from all ethnicities, from all socioeconomic background. Our text makes it clear that even kings, monarchs, are going to bow before him. We read in verse 9, May desert tribes bow down before him, and may his enemies lick the dust. Here we see that even as his enemies are brought under subjection, to him, portrayed here as not simply kissing the ground because that was the custom of the ancient Near East. You know what the word of God is saying here? Christ's enemies are going to get down before him and they're not just going to kiss the ground, but they're going to lick the dust. They're going to lick it. What subjugation, what humiliation 
Verses 10 through 11, we see further signs of the universality of his reign. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings, here it comes, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Recall the Magi from the east, coming all the way from the east, and how far were they traveling? It is said they were traveling for roughly 800 miles through desert areas. And these men were traveling, putting their lives in their hands, because in those days there were bandits, there were brigands along the way who would rob and kill, plunder and kill travelers. These men, here's what Matthew says, they came from the east. You see there? Nations coming from the east, magi, wise men coming from the east, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Come to worship him. I want to ask you this morning, why have you come today? Why are you in this service this morning? Are you here to worship him and later on, we are told that when they came to the house where the Lord Jesus was with Mary's mother, the Bible says they found a young child with Mary's mother. And what did they do? They bowed down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The teaching found throughout the word of God then is this, and with this I close. It's at once a comforting and a sobering thought. And the thought is this. That all will. Everyone will. Every single person who has ever been born into this world. Will worship and honor Christ as king. Whether or not they want to. Yes, but I'm not going to worship him. I won't have anything to do with him. In fact, I hate him. Let me say this. Read the text. You are going to bow. And the word of God says, lick the dust before him. And every tongue is going to confess, whether in weal or in woe, that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the wonderful news. On this side eternity, we can come willingly, gladly, and bow right now. Worship him. Enjoy the prosperity of his reign in our lives. Or we wait for that fateful, dreadful day when in judgment we'll stand before him, we'll hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you, you work as a vinegar. And here's the point, here's a frightening thought. You see, somebody says, well, that's good, at least I get away from him. He says, depart from him. No, 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 no. One man says this, hell were a refuge if it hid from thy frown. The idea there is this, that even in hell there'll be consciousness, a wasted opportunity of how much you resisted the gospel, of how much you hated Christ, of how much you were indifferent toward him. Kiss the son, the word of God says, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When is that done? Not when we die. When we die, there's no priest in all the world that can get us from the grips of his wrath and judgment. We come to terms with him in this life. You say, how do I do that? Listen to this, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you sincerely believe that, you trust him as your Savior, believing that when he died on the cross, his death was sufficient payment for your sins. You rest in that fact. Here's the point. You are on your way to glory. May God bless these truths to our hearts.